Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Hey everyone, I just wanted to let you know that we just launched three new mini-courses. These mini-courses were designed for those seeking meaningful change in their lives and relationships without the time or financial commitment of my full-length core courses. These short courses make for a perfect gift or introduction to my material. Right now we have a mini course for newlyweds, one on intimate deception, and also one that outlines many of the common cultural myths that interfere with good intimate sexuality. And we hope to be adding to this collection soon. So you can click on the link in the show notes to learn more. Welcome. We're going to talk today a little bit about loss and its impact on desire and specifically when that's different in a couple, which it often is, where one handles loss through increased desire and another handles loss through a decrease in desire. I do want to say I'm speaking to this topic without the experience that some of you have had reading through some of these heartbreaking questions where some have suffered really grave, difficult losses, like just really life-altering grief. And so I'm speaking with just, you know, some of my thoughts on this, that there is no right way to grieve and there are no easy answers. And I certainly know less about this through lived experience than some of you. So I do really welcome your thoughts and your experiences and any hard-earned wisdom that some of you have. I mean, that said, it's also true that you can't really get through life without loss and at a minimum, you know, loss of what you had hoped or expected life to be or at least some of the idealism about what life should bring you or offer you in response to your efforts. And so, so much of life, and I think even midlife crisis is often a kind of reorienting to what one's expectations in life are. I'll jump in and just read a couple of the questions that you have posted in the group. This person writes, our 10-year-old daughter recently passed away unexpectedly. Besides all of the grief and pain, I've almost completely lost the desire for any kind of physical contact with my husband. Other than hand-holding and some cuddling, I get such a terrible, bad, and emotional reaction when he tries to instigate sex. I get very upset and begin to cry and just can't control my emotions. I don't want him to touch me in any way. It makes me cringe and really upsets me. I feel so violated when it happens. I've always been the lower desire partner, so our sex life wasn't great before we lost our daughter. I guess I'm wondering about the connection between child loss and loss of sex drive. Is this normal? Will it ever not make me so upset? I feel terrible for my husband being rejected in this way, and I mourn the loss of a sec- what little sex drive I had, even if it was small. So, I mean, I think first thing I would say is that when grief is acute, it's especially challenging because what happens in grief is that your whole sense of reality, your sense of who you are, 
your sense of what you could expect in life, it's all falling apart. And there is a kind of disorganization that is very difficult and very painful and very difficult to even know what's up and down or who you are or what to expect of yourself. And in that acute trauma, acute disorganization, you may respond in ways that are very different than how you normally respond. You may respond in ways that are very different from how your spouse responds and very different from how you may respond four years from now or a year from now. So just out of the gate, I think some level of just allowing yourself to fall apart and being compassionate towards yourself through that difficulty and compassionate with your spouse that they may have a different way of handling the grief. Some people handle grief that to have sex feels almost like a betrayal. Like, why should I have joy or pleasure or allow myself some kind of happiness when I've lost my child or I've lost someone else dear to me or something painful and, and awful has happened, it, it can feel like that it is incongruous. It, it's not acceptable that joy would be like to diminish the loss or diminish the person that you love and have lost. And other people respond to that same grief by trying to seek a kind of connection or a claim to life. Some people Actually, their sex drive goes up when they have become deeply aware of loss or have suffered a loss because it's trying to hang on to something or feel connected to a source of sustenance or pleasure. And so, again, people's responses may surprise them and may even disappoint them. But, you know, to be kind to ourselves in that is, is certainly in order. I think when it obviously can be really difficult or challenging is when one is seeking solace in one form and another seeking solace in another way. And precisely at a time when you may feel you have very little to give or very little to really offer. And so I, I don't have easy answers for any of it because there's a certain amount of tolerance of just going through the difficulty and perhaps looking for, is there some way that I can, you know, I think this person was saying that love the cuddling and, you know, is there some way that we can offer to each other the comfort that we're in need of or is seeking? So, you know, if the husband is able to offer the cuddling and the connection as a real honest offering to his wife who's suffering and if you can, I, I know you're saying it feels you have an emotional reaction. You don't have to do it, of course. But can I offer to him some comfort because I know what he's going through, because I know the pain we're in and this offers him comfort. And so I choose to do it because I want to help us. I want us to find some solace in all of this. And, you know, it's a very imperfect process. And again, I, I certainly don't want to be a voice of you should do any particular thing, but 
can we find a way to comfort each other and in a sense have somewhat low expectations of each other at the same time? I'm going to move on to another similar question, but this is kind of a little bit further down the road on some of this. This person says, as I think about my experience with great loss and look at my life over the decades since that loss, I think it is fair to say my desires have changed. And if I'm being honest, I think what I have lost is the desire to put in effort. I feel like I can find joy in the things that come easily, but those things that require work and effort have lost their appeal. How do you relearn and rededicate yourself to planning and effort after life has, after all your efforts and planning, robbed you of people and things that were paramount to your original hopes and dreams? Is it really ever possible to have new hopes and dreams that will motivate you in the same way that those lost ones did? Okay, so again, it's very hard for me to actually teach on this because I I feel like these are not easy questions. They're very hard questions. It's one thing to say these ideas. It's another thing to find the courage to reclaim hope. Some people suffer much, much bigger losses than others do um, because life is unfair, because some are more fortunate than others. And I think when you have earnest hopes and desires and yet life doesn't give you what you wanted, that you have to metabolize loss, unfair loss, heartbreaking loss, right? To to be able to reinvest in life, to try again, takes an entirely different level of courage and to care again, right? Rather than live in a kind of numb depression, right? Which is certainly an understandable response, certainly one that I imagine many people claim or choose. I remember listening to Esther Perel, whose parents met each other. They, They were both survivors of the Holocaust, and her parents met each other in the, I think, weeks following the end of the war. I think they were in one of those northern European areas. I'm trying to remember which which country her parents got married in. But she talked about that growing up in that history and that those stories that there were people who survived and there were people who thrived. That is, there were people who didn't die, is the way she says it, and there are people who chose to live again. And that this is a kind of a, a willingness to take a risk again, to embrace the hope, the desire, the investment the, to, to try in a deeply imperfect world, in a world in which evil is a real thing, disappointment is real, loss is real. I think that we often talk about faith as a virtue and often we sort of put it in just the frame of, you know, believing things that you don't have perfect evidence of. But I think a much broader and deeper understanding of faith is to care, to try to take a risk in the face of uncertainty, in the face of potential loss, potential heartbreak, right? Many of us prefer to be behind that sort of guarded, self-protected cynicism or pessimism or not even daring to try. And again, I have no simple judgments about it. It's just that it's to, to extend ourselves is our only chance at 
really trying to find and create beauty again. But so much of what it is to live life is to tolerate what little control we have often over the outcome. We only have control over how we handle it and who we are in the face of it. And some of us have to answer that question at a much more difficult level than others. So to this person's question, I mean, I think that what she or he is getting at is this question of, you know, do I dare to live again? Do I dare to care again? Do I dare to actually try to invest in a possibility when I did before? I do think, you know, just to the issue of kind of midlife crisis or the experience of what midlife crisis is often for people. And I think this is the way that James Hollis and others that write about this idea of two halves of life, or as Richard War talks about in Falling Upward, is there's this building part of life where we're creating and we believe like if you do A, B, and C, you get D, you know, you marry this person, then you're going to have this experience. And there's this, and it's a valuable part of life. It's an important part of life. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's very much this idea that I have control and I can execute and create things and have the good life. And so we all often have been given ideas about what is required to get that good life. And a lot of good comes in our efforts to create a self, create an identity, create skills, capacity in ourselves. But uh, without question, right, this is ultimately where life will disappoint. There are always limitations in what it is to be human. There's always limitations in ourselves. There'll be limitations in our marriages, limitations in our families. Disappointment is a given. Loss is a given. Grief and uncertainty is a given. And a lot of times we run into that at a certain point, a certain stage, and it's disorienting and disorganizing. Sometimes it's in the form of faith crisis. Sometimes it's in the form of a broken marriage or a child that's struggling. And so it often pressures us. It's what Richard Rohr calls falling upward, but you fall. You have this disorganization and loss of a kind of certainty or an ability to plan on a kind of control that you would imagine you might have. And so it's how do we reorient to our lives with more wisdom and perhaps more sobriety around how much we actually have control over or how tough life can be, but still trying to create good or beauty in the face of that with more wisdom, with more humility in the best sense, but more sense of self that's not so externally driven, not so much about proving oneself to the external world, but more a deeper understanding within us of where real beauty lies, where real goodness is. I was listening to someone at the Faith Matters Conference, and I think it was Jared Halverson who was talking about this, that life is this pattern of Garden of Eden, like the simplicity, the ease. Then there's the fall and then atonement, right? And it's a very similar idea. The simplicity, I know the rules, here things as an innocence. But then we invariably experience the fall into the lone and dreary world, the dark, the hard, the difficult, the struggle, our ineffectualness, our lack of power over the things that matter to us, and even our de worthy desires, but that we can't make happen. And so how do we find the grace? How do we find 
the courage to keep going, to keep stepping forward, to, to grow into wisdom and be able to love at a deeper level, accept at a deeper level. I think Richard Ward Rohr talks about this idea of a bright darkness or a dark beauty. I'm not quite saying the way he said it, but there's this idea that there's a kind of a darker sense of how the world disappoints, but knowing what beauty is at a deeper level, seeing the good in it, seeing the courageous in people, right? Finding something deeper within ourselves. Again, it's one thing if you're in an acute loss, it's just these ideas don't matter. You're in the fall and it's painful and looking for solace, looking for even just a belief that I'm going to come out of this is sometimes all that one can possibly find faith in, that I'm going to find my footing again at some point. But after the acute loss, then often it's about how am I going to go forward? What am I taking from this? What am I going to choose in response to this loss? What am I going to do with my life in, my, in this difficult situation? This person says there are a lot of things I think I hoped for in marriage that I'm realizing maybe just weren't realistic, even though I still desire them. At a certain point, I think maybe we grow up and realize that the person we thought our spouse was or the person we thought they'd become is effectively dead and we are with someone else. How do we navigate desires that have a very real possibility of never being fulfilled and are therefore lost? Right. So this is a hard thing about marriage. And I think especially true in a lot of the couples I work with where one no longer believes in the church and the one spouse does. And often the couple on some level are both handling loss of how they thought their marriage would be, loss of what they thought they would create together. Um, even the disbelieving spouse is often dealing with a sense of loss and um, disorientation around what is my life really about and what are we about? And so in the face of that kind of loss, it's not easy. And I think it's very easy for people to live in a kind of resentment that life should have been different. You should have been different. Life should have been easier. The church should have been different. I, sh I should have had it another way. And, and there is nothing wrong with the fact that we're going to be disappointed and upset and have feelings about it, and that's completely normal and healthy, right? And it's okay to have that. But sometimes the way we handle it is rather than letting life wake us up through our experiences, letting life wake us up to the reality of a spouse who thinks differently, the reality of what it is to love someone who doesn't just reinforce the world as we wanted it, or the marriage as we wanted it, then it pushes us up against really fundamental questions about who am I going to be in the face of the world as it is, not as I think it should be, not as I wanted it to be. And so I can remember when my child was diagnosed with autism when he was about two years old, and my husband and I really went through a kind of disorganization of our expectations about what it was to be a parent, about who our child was, about what this meant, about all the uncertainty. We had no idea what it was going to mean about our lives, about his life. And I would cry in the middle of a grocery store. I'd cry in the middle of a school meeting. I mean, 
my own affect was dysregulated and unpredictable often for me. And, and so much of what was happening, especially in that first year, was just trying to step into a new identity, a new understanding of what it was going to mean to parent, a new understanding of what my future might be, or at least what it wasn't going to be. And, you know, after some level of reorganization happened, right, I think then came the question on some level of who am I going to be in the face of this? Like, it's not what I chose. It's not what I would have wanted. I didn't even go into like, you know, I didn't deserve it or I did deserve it. It was more that it is. It just is. And so how am I going to be in this? Because that's the part I can control. And sometimes it takes a period of time before we can move into that question. But I think that's a fundamental question. And so back to this question around a spouse that's disappointing. People are really up against a, a real choice, and it's often a choice they want to avoid. They'd rather avoid it through resentment or pressuring the person to be more the way that they wish they were. You know, be more like me. Things would be much better if you just be the way you should be, as opposed to who is this person I'm with and can I choose him? I have disappointment. I wanted something else. Can I know this person and choose them as they are? Can I love this person? Can I bring my best to this person, even though they disappoint me? Okay. Most of us don't think of marriage as that, but on some level, that's what a good marriage is. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, it's just like you stop resenting the person for being not every fantasy, hope, wish, desire that you once had. And I mean, some people have bigger gaps in this than others do. But can I love this person, care about them, bring my best here, or can I not? And I think that a lot of times we don't want to answer that question. We want to just pressure the other person or be a victim of our own choices of staying in the marriage but not loving in it well, rather than standing up and really deciding one way or the other that I'm going to care about this person, value them, bring my best, even though I'm disappointed about some things or I wish they had been different. But I can choose this person and choose the good that's here. Or I can't. And if you really can't and you're going to punish them if you stay with them, right, then maybe it's better to let them go and to let someone else, let them have a chance to be with someone who can choose them. How do you dance the line between giving yourself permission to grieve, a good question, versus wallow in being a victim? I mean, yeah. I mean, the grief feels clean. You're not sitting around in poor me. How did this happen to me? I didn't deserve it. It's not that. It's just, it's, it, there's, there's clean pain. I don't know how to say it. It's just gotta, like, you just know you're in pain. You know you're crying and you don't really want to be crazy right now. Inconvenient. You're in the middle of a school meeting. So, but, you know, you're, it's just kind of flowing through you. It's coming up. And you're kind to yourself in just allowing the grief to happen. It's productive grief. The victim has a kind of superiority in it. It's got an entitlement in it. It's got a punitiveness in it. It's got the fantasy that, you know, it, I, I should have had it better. 
it life should have given me different than this. I remember, again, this is just one loss and it's some people have much bigger losses. But I remember a friend of mine saying, do you feel angry at God about this? Do you feel angry that this is your situation? And to be honest, it had never occurred to me that kind of an idea because I guess I just don't think like that, that, that I think, you know, there are much more painful realities, much harder realities. And this is just a biological reality that has touched my life and is now mine to decide who I'm going to be in the reality of an imperfect world pressing itself upon me. And so I live much more in the idea that bad things happen to good people all the time. And the fact that I drove home this morning and didn't get in a car accident is a great blessing because bad things happen to people all the time. And so to cherish the good and to value it and be grateful for it because to live life is to tolerate the anxiety of all that you don't control even though it all matters so so much so it's a it's not in the idea that i am owed better because i don't know where that world is expectations should we have them or completely let them go before the matter of being let down what is a healthy line of expectation in life so we aren't let down? That's a really good question. I'm trying to think about the best way to think about that. You know, I think that you're going to get let down in life. I, there's really no getting around that. You're going to want things and then they aren't going to work out or you're going to desire completely righteous desires to use that phrase. It, there's nothing wrong with wanting it, um, and yet you can't control having it. So a lot of times what, what we struggle with is what we don't have control over. So it's easier sometimes for us to live in the entitlement of my husband should love me. But then it also means that when they do love you and they do good for you and they care about you to just dismiss it as, well, you should do that. And I can see the 17 things you're not doing. And so we can use entitlement to get away from the ultimate risk of letting someone else affect our lives. That said, knowing that you only have control over you is not a small thing to say because if you choose someone and they really choose not to love you, be honest with you, be fair to the marriage, bring their best, and you say, like, it's undermining my dignity to be here, or it is, um, you know, again, it always comes back to what can I choose here? And to be awake to who the other person is, not out of an entitled place, but an awareness, and to say, is this where I can choose to be, or is it more than I can choose, right? So is it undermining of my dignity to be here? I mean, sometimes life is somewhere in the middle of those two and harder to discern and harder to know. But I think it's better to push ourselves around rather than you should be these ways, rather to say you are this way. Rather than you should be different, who is my spouse? Okay, Is my spouse someone that lies to me? Is my spouse someone who tries to give me one picture but lives another picture? Rather than trying to coach them on who to be, start dealing with who they are good and bad, right? Difficult and easy. 
because then you are dealing more with what they choose. And then what am I going to choose in the face of what they choose? Again, our frustration and resentment always comes when we're trying to control others rather than control ourselves in the face of who others are. Any fantasy that a marriage is going to manage your sense of self or make you feel desired and valuable all the time or that any one person can or should have that responsibility is to demand too much of marriage uh, and of your partner and therefore to be frustrated with them. Our, our ability to really cherish another person is very linked to our tolerance of solitude, of aloneness, of invalidation, of disconnection, right? That, that that's the paradox that if we ask too much of another to manage something in us, well, then we're going to be disappointed excessively and keep alive an entitlement that they owed us our good feelings as opposed to they are a person that's flawed and manages themselves imperfectly as I do. And how am I going to handle myself in the face of that disappointment? That's the core question. Can you please speak to the loss inherent in a faith deconstruction? So I think that there are several kinds of loss in that. In the book I'm working on, I'm talking about different stages of faith development. And many of you have probably read some of these ways of thinking, like Fowler's stages of development and, and Kohlberg and, and many different thinkers on this front. Where we generally start is a very external worldview. Like if I do X, Y, and Z, I will get these positive consequences. So we're very self-focused and we're living in a way that we think if we behave, obey, comply, yield, we will get safety, we will get the goods, we will get the blessings. And that is a kind of transactional faith that we want. And it's the way we think when we're younger, because we can't really think in a broader way. We think from a much more egocentric frame of trying to keep ourselves safe and trying to feel a sense of control in a big and frightening world. And so to the degree that we're hearing messages at church or in our family that reinforce that idea, right, we will really take comfort in that. Now, there's nothing going wrong, actually. I mean, that's where we all have to start. And doesn't matter what your faith tradition is your, or culture, you're going to learn the rules of that culture and on some level, try to master it to basically win in it and to get control in it. But ultimately, you know, you don't have control over other people. When we're in like what I call the second stage, we move out of that more just kind of egocentric and where our minds are more enmeshed in other people's minds. And we're trying to keep other people happy with us because then they reflect back that we matter and we belong. So our goals are more around belonging. We're learning the rules of our faith, so on, so that we're seen as legitimate within that group, right? There's a strong sense of control that if you do the right things and do what the group believes, you're going to get the goods. Okay, well, that falls apart and it often falls apart in marriage because if your sense of self is residing in your spouse, where it usually is when you first get married, you, you can't feel free in the marriage because it's too burdened by your spouse's limitations and whether or not they approve of you and so on. So there is a, a falling apart of a kind of control usually in some kind of faith crisis or transition is that, wait, these rules 
aren't actually delivering on what I thought they would. I see couples who often go into a kind of faith shift, at least, when they're coming in around marital and sexuality issues and saying, I've done all the things, and why are we unhappy together? Why is there no passion? Why is there no connection? Or why is there so little? And so it's kind of a fracture of a, of a sense of control. And so people often feel like they're in a free fall on some level. Where is God in this? Is God real? Is goodness real? Is, you know, can I, should I just become cynical and angry at the false promises that I have internalized? Or is there a deeper wisdom to find here? And I think, again, this is the issue of faith because it's easy in the face of the loss and the disappointment and the reality of a deeply imperfect and unfair world to stay hopeful, to stay charitable, to stay hopeful, faithful to the ultimate reality of good, even when you've been disappointed. And so what does it mean to create good in this world? What does it mean to take what I have learned and internalize what I believe is really true and live according to that, okay? That disorganization is hard, and it can be especially hard if you're trying to talk to others about your experience of disbelief or disorganization, and you're being treated as if you are a threat or a problem or someone not interested in what is true and what is good. Now, some people, you know, use that faith crisis to be quite punitive and destructive and so on. But many people are really trying to find some kindness and some friendship in honest questions and honest loss and honest uncertainty. And, you know, what I think is ultimately loss is often a sense of people who understand you or don't feel afraid of you. And there's a loss of perhaps a God that you feel it's got a handle on everything, right? It's going to keep you out of pain, keep you out of loss. The God I believed was, if you do all the right things, everything will go okay. I remember in high school, my friend who would drink sometimes and things like that was like, I just feel much safer walking next to you at night because she knew that I was obedient. <laughs> so she's like, I just, nothing bad's going to happen to me if I'm just walking next to you. And I think for a lot of people, that who've gone through some real loss despite living good, earnest lives can really feel disoriented by that, the ultimate or the experience of a kind of aloneness in the world. You know, I've gone through that myself and feeling like, is God real? Is God there? Is it who is God, right? But the more I live, the more clear it is to me that God and goodness is real. And evil is also real, right? That there are ways we can behave that create strength in ourselves, strength in our relationships, strengthen one another, create a better world, and ways that we can behave that are indulgent and self-serving and create destruction in ourselves, in others, right? And so it's still pushing forward in the face of uncertainty to a deeper kind of knowing that's not so dependent on external reinforcement as a kind of internalized understanding of what is true, of what is beautiful, of what is good, of what creates 
hope and strength in yourself and in others. This person says, my husband and I are in our 40s. The last few years have been really hard as all four of our parents have died. Our college da daughter came out as transgender and we've moved to a different state. Oh, it's a lot. We still have three kids living at home. And I feel like both of us are just trudging through life, trying to hold on. How do we best navigate this time of grief that will work out the best for my husband and I, as well as not ruining our children? <laughs> okay, I'm not sure in what way you think you may be ruining your children, but... So first of all, I would say just have some real compassion on yourselves because to lose all four parents, to have children who, as they're emerging into adulthood, whether that's that they're gay or transgender or some something or don't believe in the church or, you know, or have issues you were not expecting them to have in life. You know, some kids come through and they just please you at every turn. OK, but but most kids are having challenges or things that are needed or imperfection or, you know, it's a lot to hold on to. And then, you know, again, a disrupted community, you've moved to another state, it's a lot. And I think just being kind to yourself for starters and trying to be compassionate to your spouse as well and your children as you weather through. It's sometimes hope and faith is just putting one freaking step in front of the other some days and trying to be as honest with yourself as you can, trying to find some courage and trying to do your best, which is sometimes the most beautiful form of good, is that even when we don't know what to do, we still don't give up. We still don't stop trying. And we still tr try to do what we feel is fair to ourselves and others. This person says, how can you have hope once you've moved past the idea of a transactional faith? It's been a struggle to understand faith being actions without it being transactional? Well, it's a great question. Let me see how I think about that. See, I, I don't think of it as, oh, I did this good thing, and now God is going to give me a reward. I think of it more in the way that Joseph Smith perhaps talked about it, that blessings are basically the result of living in line with true principles, right? So I think of it as that I have a testimony of the fact that when I do what I know is honest, and courageous, and I'm sacrificing my own validation or how I might be seen for what is honest and fair, that as hard as that can be, that I know that is the right thing to do. I know that I will be more at peace with myself. I know that the world is better for me doing that, even if I can't measure how it's better because it is the right way to live, right? It is right to be fair, to be honest. And it also is essential to me being at peace with myself. So I have a deep testimony of that fact that I can't screw with my own sense of right and wrong and be at peace with myself. I can't indulge to get away from things that are inconvenient and are stretching me too much and really be at peace. So that isn't so much transactional that God is going like, to dispense blessing. It's that I'm living godly, that I'm living truthfully. I'm living in a truthful relationship with myself and others. And that's where the peace is. 
It doesn't mean that there isn't suffering. It doesn't mean that there isn't loss. It doesn't mean that you have control over everything that matters because you do not. But you have control over the one thing, which is who you will be. And that's not a small piece to have. I think we sometimes, in our effort to get a sense of control of others or to get approval from others, we betray ourselves and betray what we really believe and feel. And we pay a big price for it because it makes us believe in ourselves less. It makes us devalue ourselves. So the hope is more in watching as you live honestly and courageously, seeing that more good comes from it. Like when I work with couples and they come clean on things or they start to face who they are in the marriage and they start talking honestly to their spouse about their own indulgence or indecency and it's painful and it hurts but it's an act of faith and it's an act of love right like love and faith go together but it's also what makes you grow in your understanding of what's true your understanding of the power you have to create a better marriage to create a better world to create a self you respect right and you can't get around that i just you know it's just true and you can't break those rules, and live joyfully. I feel like I've been in this persistent malaise for a number of months, and I suspect it's related to recognizing both, one, more and more all the ways I fail as a husband, and two, the acknowledgement that my wife might never change certain things about how she treats me and how she chooses to engage with me. I don't know how much of this is dysfunctional self-pity versus just allowing myself to feel sad about conditions I might never have the opportunity to experience in our relationship. I'm choosing the marriage because there's so much good there. Yes. Okay, I'll get to, but yes, sometimes actually what actually opens us up to more good is to grieve what it isn't and what it may never be. I'm choosing the marriage because there's so much good there as it is. And I'm doing better at not putting the responsibility for my sadness and anxiety onto my wife. Good for you. Really, this is grown-up endeavor. But it doesn't feel like I'm getting to a more hopeful place, a place of courage. How do I breach into the realm of courage? How might I manage to move out of the persistent malaise? That's a good question. I don't know if I know the answer to that. So first of all, I think when you face what it is and what it may never be, it's not, it, you know, if it's not an indulgent pessimism, but more an honest awareness of what the marriage may never be. Yeah, I think there is a grief in it. And the malaise is the part I'm trying to make sense of in what you're saying. I mean, sometimes malaise is a way of kind of detaching from something and just kind of going into a sort of affectless disengagement in a way. But so I don't know if that's what you're saying or, you know, if it's just you're in some grief and it's more productive than that, but it just is lasting longer than you want. But yeah, I think for many people, the ability to move forward is to really come to terms with what is. And I think Sam Harris talks about this idea and some Eastern thinkers talk about this idea that once you accept something as it is in yourself, in a spouse, in a marriage, not trying to force it into something else, but to actually accept it as it is and to acknowledge what's there, that actually changes your relationship to it. And therefore, it changes it. And I, and I don't mean to say it's the trick to get things to be different, but 
it is the way forward is often instead of our resistance to what is, to accept what is allows us to really change who we are relative to it. Or the, the way that I think that others would say it is in the act of accepting, it changes. So, so I don't know if I know the answer to your question because I don't know entirely why you feel continue to be stuck because maybe what you're stuck around is that you can't accept it or that you're not able to truly grieve it and to really say, okay, I still choose it despite my disappointment. Maybe there's a kind of resentment or detachment that's still you're not facing enough and it's keeping you from fully grieving and making choices around it. And partly maybe you're pushing back from it a bit still. That's my best guess based on what's there. This person says, I've been healing from a miscarriage that happened last month and it's definitely impacted my sex life with my husband. What can I do to feel more connected with my body? That is, again, it's, it has its own challenges because for some people it can feel like their body has betrayed them or their body is failing them or some sense of their ability to feel like a woman. I, I, several of the women I interviewed in my dissertation research had miscarriages, like a disproportionate number, and that many talked about this experience of a, of a sense of betrayal of the body and a sense of that their sexuality was now kind of connected to a sense of their deficiency in some way. So, you know, so much of forgiving is about grieving. So it's like forgiving your body, forgiving the imperfection of our humanity. That is a spiritual process, right? To, even just to forgive ourselves for or the world for living in it in the imperfection of it is to kind of be more able to tolerate wanting good things and not being able to control them. And so I think there's that's the larger picture on that, and it may take some time. I think the perhaps the more immediate sense is to speak forgiveness to your body, right? To say, like, I love you, I'm grateful for you, I'm grateful for all the good that you've brought into my life, the beauty you allow me to have access to for what I'm able to do in my life. And I'm as disappointed as I am about this miscarriage, I still choose to love and be grateful for this body. So you can talk yourself through that mantra or way of orienting as a way of really offering kindness to yourself. I think that's something we can do quite deliberately with our bodies, and it's good for us to be more celebratory of all that they offer. Let's see. How about, there's one I didn't get. How about total loss of certain dreams? How do I navigate that? As an example, my mom and dad always talked about how they were going to go serve a mission when they were older, and my dad was retired. About a year after he retired, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's and that is something they will not be able to do. Parkinson's has been hard on both of them in different ways, but there was definitely a lot that they lost to it. Yeah, I mean, life is so hard. It really is because it comes and gets you sometimes, and it's not that what you desired wasn't good, wasn't valuable, wasn't worthy, 
And sometimes life just asks you to deal with terrible unfairness and grief. And so I think, again, it's just so much easier to talk about it than to live through it. Because when you're living through it, it's just so painful because you can't have the good things that you want or you can't have them at least in the way you wanted. I think the antidote is to know that this is so much a part of what it is to choose to live, is to run the risk of caring and being disappointed and looking for, you know, who can I be in the face of this grief, in the face of this loss? Who can I be to find my courage to respect who I am in this, to be what I can feel respect for while still knowing that what I desired was legitimate, but not something I can have. And I think if we think a good God gives us those things, well, then it's much harder to forgive God for not giving us the good thing we wanted. I think if we see the world as a little more random than that, it actually can help because so many people, so many good people suffer loss when they deserve, in that sense, to have better. So much of spiritual growth is to really handle that or to forgive that fact of what it is to be alive. I think it also helps you appreciate what you have. I mean, I've spoken about this before, but I often am thinking about the fact that someday my husband's eight years older than me. Very likely he will leave me first and and I will be without him and I will be in that bed alone and I don't mean to say that I'm sitting around just thinking about how terrible things could be, but it's like, you know, keeps me aware of all the good and the beauty in the right now. Sometimes when I'm in the stress of the present, it's like to remind myself, someday I'm going to die and I have the privilege of having this problem right now. <laughs> I have the privilege of being in this stress and in this difficulty because someday I won't have that. And it's just a reminder to cherish the good, it's the way we can glean the beauty and help us cope with the, the struggle. I guess the last thought about that is oftentimes sex can be, and it doesn't mean that it, you must make it this if you're in acute loss, but sex can be to step back into beauty, step back into living, allow yourself to have joy, sustenance, pleasure in spite of loss, right? That you can Give yourself the ability to have a joy in your life, especially if you lost someone you love to know that they do want you to live. They want you to thrive. They want you to be happy. And so it can help to, in honor of the loss, to claim happiness and to live well because it isn't, you know, to sort of refuse to hope again creates less good in the world. Okay, everybody, I hope some of these thoughts have been helpful and I will talk to you all next month. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.